One of the best loved works of English literature is Jane Austen's novel Pride and Prejudice. Uh, the story is about two people, Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy, who have to swallow their pride and overcome their prejudice. And when they do that, something beautiful happens. And likewise, in Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter has to overcome his pride and prejudice in order for something beautiful to happen. Uh, the beautiful thing for Elizabeth Bennet and uh, Mr. Darcy, not to, to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, is that they get married. Uh, and the beautiful thing in this chapter is the gospel going out to the Gentiles, uh, to the nations of the world, in order that Jesus Christ might have a bride, not just made up of Jewish people, but of people from every nation of the earth as had been the plan from the very beginning. When we looked at the last chapter, I said that the conversion of the Apostle Paul was one of the most significant events in the history of the world. And Acts chapter 10 is no less important because it is the moment when the door is opened for the gospel to go out to the nations of the earth. It's the moment when God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him takes a massive step forward. Uh, and it's also uh, the moment when the church begins to shed the last of the exclusively Jewish clothes that it had been wearing for the last 1500 years. So this is a hugely significant moment. And it's a moment that the whole book of Acts has been building up to so far. What is the great mission plan of the church in Acts? Well, we've gone back to chapter 1, verse 8 so many times at this point that I do hope you know it off by heart. So hopefully you'll be able to fill in the blanks on your sheet. But that mission plan of the church, it comes from the lips of Jesus himself and it is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a glorious mission plan. And it's one that we've been seeing unfold uh, since the book of Acts has begun. And here, ten chapters in, the gospel is poised to move out to the non-Jewish world. But is there anything that can stop that? Is there anything that can stop the spread of the gospel? Either in their day or in our day. Maybe we say, well, opposition and persecution, that could stop the work of the gospel. Well, the book of Acts tells us that's not actually the case. In fact, it's not until persecution comes that the church begins to obey the first step of this mandate and move out from beyond Jerusalem as persecution comes and scatters them. So if opposition and persecution can't stop the spread of the gospel to the nations of the earth, what can? Well, simply and tragically, the prejudice of believers can 
In this chapter, the the pride and prejudice of Peter has to be overcome before the gospel can go to the Gentiles. And it's not just a one-off problem that needs to be dealt with and then we move on. As the New Testament goes on, we'll see attempts from Jewish Christians to build back up the dividing wall that in Christ had been broken down. Even Peter himself goes back, in a sense, And right down to our own day, pride and prejudice can stop the spread of the gospel. Now perhaps in our circumstances it's not Jew-Gentile prejudice. But it is a fact that there are communities in the UK today that are less likely to have gospel preaching churches than others. Because denominations don't want to plant churches there uh, and uh, because Christians don't want to live there. Uh, There are certain places where it's easy to get people and and funding uh, to plant churches, certain places not so much. Or to bring it down to the level of of an individual congregation uh, to ourselves. Are there first-time visitors at church that you would be more likely to talk to than others? Not because you know them, but because their lives seem to be more under control. And maybe they look more like you. And would you be quicker to talk to them than someone else? So yes, this chapter is a massive turning point in what we call redemptive history. In fact, if we don't see it as a big deal, it shows just how successful the integration of Jew and Gentile in the church has been. But don't think of this as a chapter with no practical implications for us today. So our theme is overcoming pride and prejudice. And we're going to see what God does to overcome the the pride, uh, prejudice and and traditionalism of, of Peter under three headings. And firstly, we see supernatural preparation. Supernatural preparation. There are a lot of things about the passage in front of us today that should flag up how important it is, both for us as readers and for Peter and others who experience these things firsthand. For us as readers, there's the sheer length of the chapter. And if we include Peter's summary in the first half of the next chapter, this is the longest single scene in the book. Uh, As well as that, like the story of of Paul's conversion, it's also repeated not just once but twice in the next chapter. uh, But Peter also refers to it briefly again in chapter 15. So this is a story that we're told at some length. And then the key points are repeated and then repeated again. And for the characters in the story, they would have sensed there was something significant going on in the supernatural circumstances God used to bring about the meeting of Peter and Cornelius. The story starts with Cornelius. We're introduced to him in verse 1 as a centurion of the Italian cohort. And we're told that he is a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, likely the, the Jewish people among whom he lived. 
and prayed continually to God. Uh, We're further told down in verse 22 that he's an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. But he himself is a Gentile. And in that he has something in common with the Ethiopian eunuch who believed the gospel as Philip proclaimed it in chapter 8. But there is a a big difference between those two men in that the Ethiopian eunuch had some, what we could say, more formal connections with Judaism. Uh, For example, when, when we meet him, he's returning home from the temple in Jerusalem where he had been to worship. But Cornelius didn't have any of those connections. He clearly respected the Jews and reverenced the God they worshipped. In fact, I'll argue later on that he was already a saved man when Peter met him. But his religious life didn't intersect with Jewish religion at any point. He didn't go to the temple like the Ethiopian eunuch. But one day this Cornelius, as we're told in verse 3, sees a vision of an angel who tells him his prayers have been heard and he's to send men to Joppa where they can bring back someone called Simon Peter. As so often in the Bible you have uh, two, two men staying in the same house and they're both called Simon. Uh, not the sort of thing you would, you would write if you were making up a story, made up stories, everybody has different names. But the Bible, <laughs> there's a, a few names that are shared about because it's real life. And the next day, as the men are on their way, their way to Peter, uh, Peter himself sees a vision, uh, not just once, but three times. And in his vision, he sees a sheet with all kinds of animals on it, and he hears a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. There's no doubt who is speaking. Peter calls him Lord. But Peter, as he had done several times on earth, also tries to contradict his Lord, saying that he had never eaten anything common or unclean. What he's referring to there is a Jewish distinction between clean and unclean food that had been in place since the time of Moses. Now, Peter shouldn't have been surprised by the vision. In fact, he should should almost have been waiting for something like this. Jesus had spelled out back in Mark chapter 7 that what goes into a person cannot defile him. In other words, what makes us unclean isn't the food we put into our bodies, but the thoughts, words and actions that come out from us, out of our hearts. And so at that point in his gospel, Mark adds a little comment. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So Jesus had been preparing the way for the removal of the distinction between the food his people were allowed to eat and the food they weren't. But the distinction was so ingrained in Peter that he hadn't got it. And he still didn't get it when the vision, when he had the same vision three times. Again, maybe if you're a bit sceptical as to whether the Bible's true... If the apostles were making up the Bible, why would they have portrayed themselves as so slow to understand things? And in fact, even after the vision is repeated two more times, Peter still doesn't get it. Verse 17, he's still inwardly perplexed as to what the vision might mean. But at that point, men arrive from Cornelius 
And verse 19, the Holy Spirit tells him to go down and accompany them without hesitation. And there's a challenge right there for us, is there not? We tend to think that as long as we have the right information, we'll surely make the right choice. But this passage is surely telling us that even as Christians, we can have long-standing prejudices and patterns of thinking or behaviour that are very hard to shake. When someone learns how to drive, they're, they're taught to check their blind spot. The spot where a car might be behind them, but they can't see it in their mirrors. And if you forget you have a blind spot when you're driving, things will likely end badly. And if we're reading this chapter thinking, well, well, man, Peter is, is slow on the uptake here. Let's not forget that we all have blind spots. And the thing about a blind spot is that you can't see it. If we think we see everything perfectly, if we think that our beliefs and lives perfectly match up with God's word, let's not forget that the chances are that we have big blind spots somewhere. Maybe a minister thinks if I explain something clearly enough and show people that it's in the Bible, they'll get it, they'll they'll understand it, they'll apply it. But here Jesus himself speaks from heaven and Peter's still confused and still resistant. The Reformed Christian world seems to have an increasing number of people who feel they are absolutely right on every single issue. No matter how big or how small, they have unshakable confidence. Perhaps even to the point where they'll they'll weaponize those distinctions and use them to attack other Christians. But I think a chapter like this should sober us and make us ask the question of ourselves, "Well, well, what if I have blind spots? What if I even am right on every single issue but wrong in how I treat my fellow Christians who disagree. So God's first step in overcoming pride and prejudice here is supernatural preparation. God's second step is gospel revelation. Gospel revelation, and we'll spend the bulk of our time on this one. So Peter is a slow learner. And yet by God's grace, eventually he gets it. Verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now when it says unlawful, that doesn't mean against God's law. If you're trying to rack your brain for for an Old Testament law that said that Jews shouldn't visit Gentiles. The, the standard Greek dictionary here says this term refers primarily to what is forbidden by, not to what is forbidden by ordinance, but to violation of tradition. So wh- why was Peter reluctant to go and see these Gentiles? Well, not actually because of God's law, but because of tradition. Tradition. Yes, it's true that God had set out certain ways that his people, the, uh, the Jews, were to be distinct from those around them he had given them the ceremonial law which included these dietary regulations 
But God had never forbidden Jews to associate with or visit people of another nation. In fact, think, think of Jonah. God literally sent Jonah to, to visit people of another nation and bring the gospel to them. Incidentally, Joppa, where, where, where they are, uh, Joppa is where Jonah had boarded that boat because he was trying to resist the call because, like Peter, he too was prejudiced. But God had never said, don't, don't visit people of other nations. In fact, he, he commanded his people to at times. But as they tended to do, the Jews had built up their own laws and traditions over the top of God's laws. And their tradition is now in danger of stopping the spread of the gospel. After all, if the apostles are Jews and they're going to refuse to associate with Gentiles, then it's going to be very hard for the gospel to spread to the nations of the earth. And nor, sadly, is this the last time that tradition has been a stumbling block to the spread of the gospel. But God is at work here. He has supernaturally intervened to start changing Peter. And now he's going to use Peter's preaching to bring the Gentiles into the fold. And to explain to the watching Jews why the Gentiles are now being included. And don't miss what this chapter has to tell us about preaching. Because just like in chapter 8 with Philip, there's an angel involved. But all the angel does is set up the meeting with the preacher and then he disappears. God sends an angel to Cornelius. But the angel doesn't preach to him. The word angel means messenger, but the only message the angel gives Cornelius is go and send for Peter. Wouldn't it be amazing to have an angel appear to you? And yet based on Acts chapters 8 and 10, if an angel did appear to you, chances are that its message to you would be go to church, go and hear the gospel preached. Sometimes we hear of people in closed countries where Christianity is illegal and they apparently have a vision of Jesus and are converted. And I don't necessarily want to pour cold water on that. But surely based on passages like this, it's more likely that even if God did give someone a vision or send them an angel, that the whole purpose of that would be to set up a flesh and blood encounter with someone who was going to share the gospel with them. Because as Paul says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Acts chapters 8 and 10, they have huge implications for how we should view preaching. Because in both cases, God sends sinless angels. And all they do is set up an encounter with a sinful human preacher. In both cases, God sends sinless angels. They don't preach the gospel. All they do is set up an encounter with a sinful human preacher. Verse 33 here is also really significant for helping us understand what's happening when the word is being preached. Do you notice what Cornelius says there, that the second part of the verse? Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. 
What is it that makes Cornelius think that they're in the presence of God? Is it because they're in a special building? No, they're just at his house. Is it because there's something particularly awesome about, about Peter? Again, no. Though Cornelius initially thinks that there must be, in verse 25, he, he worships Peter or he tries to. Maybe Cornelius thinks that if an angel has appeared to him and yet the angel's whole purpose was to send him to Peter, then Peter must be even more impressive than an angel. And so Peter has to correct him. In the Bible, godly men refuse to let people worship them. We see it here with Peter. We see it with, with John in Revelation. In the Bible, godly men refuse to let people worship them apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus. Because to him, worship is the only proper response. When, at the end of John's Gospel, Thomas falls down before Jesus and says, My Lord and my God, Jesus accepts his worship. But to come back to our question, what makes Cornelius rightly conclude that they're in the presence of God? It's not that there's anything special about the building, it's not that there's anything special about the speaker, but it's the fact that Peter is about to preach now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. They are in the presence of the Lord because the Lord himself has come down to speak to them through the words of the preacher. And that is how the New Testament views preaching. That when the word is preached the Lord Jesus is especially present. Ephesians 2.17 says of Jesus... He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. In other words, Jesus came and preached peace both to Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus. But when did Jesus ever go to Ephesus? You know, we, we don't read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. He was never there. It was a thousand miles away. So how can Paul say, well, Jesus came and preached peace to you? Well, Jesus was never there physically. But through the words of his ministers, Jesus had come and preached peace to those in Ephesus. And so to undervalue preaching is to undervalue the presence of God. But on the flip side, to value preaching is to value the presence of God who is ultimately speaking. And what an awesome thing that we get to experience each week. Not all communities do. And it is an awesome thing, whether we, we feel it's awesome or not, whether the preacher or the congregation has a, a sense that something unusual and unique is happening or not. Jesus is present by his Spirit and he is speaking. He is the word of God. And as they gather in the presence of God, Peter explains that he's come to see that God shows no partiality. But, verse 35, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, we need to be very careful that we understand what Peter's saying there and what he's not saying. He's not saying that people's own righteousness is enough 
so that they don't need to become Christians. Peter's not teaching salvation by works here. And if there are parts of the Bible where it could be interpreted as teaching salvation by works, we need to understand that in the context of the Bible that cannot possibly be the case. If Peter's teaching salvation by works here, there's, there's no point in the gospel, there's no point in church, there's no point in anything. But what Peter is saying is that the Gentile nationality of Cornelius and others is acceptable and so they don't have to become Jews. To talk about people who fear God is here being used as a shorthand for those who are in a right relationship with God. And because of that right relationship, they do what is right, or literally they do righteousness. But the phrase fears God is used of people in the Bible, as we'll see tonight, who, who are converted but aren't necessarily living currently in the fear of God. And so to come back up to verse 2 for a moment, when we're told that Cornelius is a devout man who feared God, I think we're being told there that he's a believer. The fact that he gives alms and prays continually to God are the fruit of the relationship he has with God and the faith he has in the Messiah, who Peter will explain to him is actually Jesus. The question is often asked, could people be saved before Jesus came? And the answer is yes. The cross is at the centre of history. They looked forward to the coming Messiah just as we look back to the Messiah who has now come. But they looked forward, rightly understood all the Jewish sacrifices and ceremonies were pointing to Christ. That's why there is no need for them now that he has come. I did every Jew understand that the, the sacrifices and ceremonies that they took part in were teaching about the coming Messiah? Well, no. Uh, and the, the religion of the Pharisees in particular, uh, by the time we get to Jesus' day, was one of works righteousness. But salvation was never by works. As the author to Hebrews put it just after speaking about Old Testament Enoch, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so works righteousness could never save anyone because God doesn't change. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Well, maybe you ask, well, what sort of faith could Enoch have had? What, what sort of faith could, could he have had in the coming Messiah? He, he, he lived before uh, this, the whole sacrificial system. But surely he had faith in the promised Messiah. Faith in the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That first gospel promise is right there after Adam and Eve sinned. And anyone who believed that promise from Adam and Eve on would be saved. And now Peter fills in more details about this Messiah, the Christ. The anointed one, anointed with the spirit and power, who went about doing good, who was put to death by being hanged on a tree. And the reason Peter says tree there rather than cross is that the Old Testament said, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. 
And that was a prophecy of the fact that Jesus would take God's curse in place of his people. But death wasn't the end because God raised him up. And this is no new gospel. This is no plan B. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness. And what do they bear witness to? Not just that Jesus would come but that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So could people in the Old Testament have faith in Christ? Of course, if they believe the prophet's message that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Gospel revelation. Thirdly, finally, and a bit more briefly, we have Holy Spirit demonstration. Holy Spirit demonstration. At this point in the book of Acts, the gospel has now reached three distinct groups of people. Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, Samaritans in chapter 8, and now Gentiles here in chapter 10. And each time that the gospel has gone to a distinct group of people, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them in a visible and a dramatic way. We see it here in verse 44. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And this is one of those places where we have to remember that we can't take every part of what happened in the book of Acts as a pattern for us today. Some parts of Acts are descriptive rather than prescriptive. They describe what happened to the people we read about, but they aren't always giving us a template to follow. Some Christians, particularly charismatic and Pentecostal Christians, don't tend to see that difference. They teach that we should experience exactly what they experienced, not realising that our circumstances are different. Based on passages like this, Pentecostal Christians will teach that, that, that people can be converted, but then they need to wait for a second blessing when they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But to turn this into what every Christian in all of history should expect is to misunderstand what's happening in Acts. At each point where people are baptized in the Holy Spirit after conversion, it's because the gospel has reached a new group of people. And it's God's way of showing that the new group isn't on a lower level than the other groups. It's to show that the Samaritans who are converted are just as fully Christians as the Jews. And so are Cornelius and his household of Gentiles. But it's not that some Christians are baptised in the Holy Spirit and some aren't. It's not that there's a higher level of Christian life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Jews, Greeks, all baptized into one body, and all made to drink of one spirit. And this is how what happens here was understood by those present. Peter says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? In other words, if they've received the reality, 
if they've received Holy Spirit baptism, as all Christians have, then how can they be denied the sign which points to that reality? If the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them, how can they be denied water being poured out on them? And so verse 48, he commanded them to be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. And in the same way, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you weren't baptised as a child, then the next step for you is baptism. Baptism doesn't save us, but it is a picture of what needs to happen or what already has happened for us to be saved. And there aren't separate baptisms for Jews, Samaritans and Gentiles. Because as Paul puts it in Ephesians, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one body made up of Jews and Gentiles and so there is one baptism. Now not everyone would get this right away. In fact, some Jews would resist it, as we'll see in the very next chapter. Books such as Galatians had to be written to counter the idea that in order to be saved, a Gentile had to first become a Jew. But from this chapter onwards, the gospel will continue to spread to the Gentiles, even down to those who brought the gospel to Scotland. And so Peter's journey from Joppa to Caesarea, a distance of 31 miles, It's what we could call a small step for man, but a giant leap for mankind. Because this is the moment that the message of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen and ascended, once and for all burst the banks of Judaism and began to rush out to the nations of the earth. And each one of us live at a time and place in history where we've had a chance to hear that message so how have you responded have you put your faith in Jesus Christ because the story of Cornelius tells us that you don't have to become a Jew in order to be saved from the wrath of God but you do have to become a Christian you do have to put your faith in the Messiah amen Well, we close by singing a psalm which speaks of the blessing of knowing God and a psalm which we see exemplified in the life of Cornelius. If there is one gospel uh, throughout all ages, we would expect Christian, Christian experience to be the same in all ages, the believer's experience. And so uh, we're not surprised when we find psalms that, that fit exactly our circumstances Uh, So Psalm 112a, Psalm 112a, and it'll be 1 and 2 and then 7 to 10, Uh, page 278, Psalm 112a, verse 1, O praise the Lord, the man is blessed who fears the Lord aright. Uh, Cornelius, we're told, feared God. In verse 2 we read about his descendants because God promises to bless not just us but our children after us. And is that not what we're told about Cornelius? He feared God along with his household. Verse 3 talks about his righteousness. And Peter explains how God had revealed to him that in 
Every nation, anyone who feared God and did righteousness was acceptable to him. Again, not that they're acceptable because of their righteousness, but their righteousness is the fruit of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Their works demonstrate their faith. Because in verse 7 of our psalm, this is a man who has put his trust in the Lord. His heart is steadfast because he has done works of righteousness. No, his heart is steadfast for his trust upon the Lord is laid. And then over the page in verse 9, he gives most freely to the poor. The gospel makes us or, or should make us generous as it made Cornelius. So Psalm 112a, seven, or 1 and 2 and 7 to the end will stand and sing praise. <laughs>